The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. One of my first jobs out of college was at a nonprofit that did education reform in San Francisco. The people there were really cool. They were educators and they cared a lot about making schools better. One of them was this woman, Lisa Congdon. She was a little older than me. She had these really cool glasses and two little buns on the top of her head. She was very driven and serious. And if I'd guessed, I probably would have thought that she would eventually run a nonprofit. That year, I also learned what we often learn in our first jobs, that I didn't really want to do that work. So I went to grad school. I moved to New York. I started writing for magazines and decades passed. And then a few years ago, I stumbled across Lisa on the internet, or rather, Lisa's work. And I thought, is this even the same person? Lisa had become an artist. Her pictures were everywhere. Greeting cards, posters, tote bags. Her Instagram pictures get thousands of likes. She's done work for MoMA. Lisa calls herself a late bloomer. She took her first drawing class at 30. She left her education job for art at 39. You don't have to be a visual artist like Lisa to follow what she's saying. She has great thoughts about how to bridge the gap between your expectations and the reality of what you make. Plus, just the importance of getting out there and beginning. Here's Lisa. So Lisa, the last time we were together in a room, we were both working in school reform and we lost touch. And when you surfaced again in my life, um, you had a very different career. And so I want to know how you came to art. I, I actually wasn't one of those kids who wanted to be an artist when they grew up. I never considered myself artistic or even really vaguely creative. I grew up in a pretty creative family. So in some ways, I was sort of labeled the least gifted, least creative person in my family. You know, fast forward, I went to college, graduated from college, became an elementary school teacher, and then went off to work at this education nonprofit in San Francisco, which is where we met when you you had just graduated from college, which it was a very long time ago. It was a very long time ago. I will tell you this. I, I do not remember you being entirely... I mean, I remember that you were interested in the arts, but I do not remember that you called yourself an artist at that point in your no, life. No, I wasn't an artist at all. It, it actually happened sort of, I think, after that, around the time that I left classroom teaching to go work at this education nonprofit, um, which was the right career move for me. I, I really loved, you know, the sort of like intellectual challenge of working in education, but sort of as a thought leader and for an organization that had this really amazing mission and vision. I also felt a real dearth of creativity in my life, right? Because being an elementary school teacher requires that you draw on this part of yourself to make things interesting for little kids. And I didn't realize until a couple of years into working in an office that I really missed that. And around that time, I also went through the breakup of a pretty significant relationship in my life. I had been with the same woman for almost a decade, and I kind of went on the this sort of search for like greater meaning in my life, as we often do when we're either confronted with change or heartache. And I started. How painting. old were you oh, at that point? Oh, 32. 32. So yeah. 32. I'm almost 52. So this was 20, 20 years ago. 
And so I started taking a few classes. Um, I took this painting class with my brother, and he knew that I was sort of dabbling in painting and drawing at the time. And so he asked me if I wanted to take this class, and I did, and it totally changed my world. And not because I sat down and I was, like, making impressive work immediately. Far from it. I just fell in love with the process of painting and the creative process. So I ended up taking more classes from this particular teacher, just sort of in his own private studio in San Francisco, and set up a little table in my studio apartment. I got, you know, a spot for my dog and I, and I set up a little painting studio at my kitchen table in the middle of this tiny apartment. And that's really where my creative journey started. And around that time, or maybe a couple years later, the internet was becoming a space for creative people to share what they were making. Um, Blogs were becoming a thing. And I started a blog. And I also joined Flickr, which we all sort of laugh now at Flickr because it seems so antiquated compared to, to Instagram. But I like to call it the original Instagram because it was this place where you could like meet other creative people who are either professional artists or photographers or dabbling in creative projects and like I was. And um, you could follow people. And I made friends there and ended up like – you know, I remember my other friends, my my other sort of real life friends were like, wait, you're going to meet someone for coffee that you met on the Internet? Aren't you scared? You know, this was at a time when that just wasn't a normal thing to do. So that's kind of where I started. And like I started to get a picture of what having a life like immersed in creativity and art might look like. And I began to sort of develop a picture for what it might look like to be. And I don't I could never have imagined that I would be doing what I do today or at the level or partly because I didn't have a picture for it and I didn't necessarily know it was possible, but partly because half of what I do today is stuff that you couldn't have done then because the technology didn't exist or, you know, the the platform didn't exist. But, but mostly it was like I could never have imagined that I could do what I do today. Um, but I started to feel like I maybe could sell some work or, you know, work part-time as an illustrator, like little things. And those were the baby steps that got me started. Do you remember the first thing you got money to produce? Yes. Actually, someone on Flickr actually followed me and she worked at the Poetry Foundation. And I illustrated like the poet, the poet laureate that year. I also had a show in a very tiny shop in San Francisco called the candy store which doesn't exist anymore and at that point I had been painting for a few years and now I do mostly commercial work but at the time I was like starting to have fine art shows in like small venues and uh, some folks from Chronicle Books which is a, a publisher in San Francisco who I've now worked with for since 2007 basically came to my show and it got some really good press and they showed up and they're like, oh, we might want to make some products with this person. And I had never done licensing before. And so that was really my first job at like making, you know, having my art go on something and be sold. Well, so I just want to back it up one moment. I mean, you you said that you weren't an artist. Um, and here you are having a fine art show and doing something called licensing. Yeah. Like, how do you even figure out what that stuff was or make the kinds of contacts that would help you to show your art to anyone? Well, thinking back now, I mean, this all happened over the matter of, you know, a matter of like two or three years. And it's easy when so much time has passed to sort of condense it into like the beginning. But really, it, I think it was this kind of dance of, I think I want to do this. 
um, getting random emails wanting from people wanting to know if I would sell them this or that. And then um, I was sort of simultaneously like anytime I would go into a shop that had a gallery component because a lot of small clothing stores and stuff will hang art and have shows and making connections with shop owners myself. Um, in addition to having sometimes them find me on Flickr or through my blog and contacting me, the first show I ever had in New York in 2007 happened that way. And um, it was a lot of asking questions about sort of, you know, how does this how does this work? You know, how do I put together a show? And, and you know, asking friends that I had made at the time, you know, how much, how much time should I dedicate to preparing for this? Because at the time I was, you know... Um, my very first show, I was still working. I still had a job, a part-time job. So um, eventually I had more time and I asked a lot of questions. I made friends with a, a woman who, um, her name is Lorena Simonovich, and she has a company called Petit Collage now and does more commercial work. But at the time, we were sort of both starting out, but she had been doing illustration for a few more years than I had. And she became a mentor to me and was like, you need to build a website you need to – I mean, this was before social media, so really it was like having a website and having an agent. And she suggested that I find an illustration agent if this is something I wanted to do professionally. And she thought, you don't have a huge body of work, but I think you have potential to do this. You have a good eye. Um, you're developing your skills. You're developing your voice. And um, she actually directed me, you know, or like pointed me in the direction of um, the woman who ended up becoming my illustration agent for six years. I'm no longer with her, but – that was also transformative. And so it was like meeting people who took me under their wing and, you know, maybe a little bit of me seeking those people out. I was going to say what, you, what you're describing is sort of a, a very light way into hustle. Like this, this isn't something that is just about creating beautiful things, but about creating beautiful things and then hustling to make sure they reach the people who can appreciate well, them. Well, yes, and I... I went from, you know, having an office job, um, you know, I worked at this education nonprofit and I was probably making, I don't know, $80,000 a year, a comfortable salary in the 2000s for, you know, and I was in a leadership position um, to deciding that I was going to leave that and my health insurance and, you know, try to pay my, I owned a small apartment in San Francisco at the time and, um, you know, I was going to, needed to pay the mortgage. And so the hustle really... It was, I think it came from a couple different um, factors. I mean, one, part of it was that I found this thing that I loved to do more than anything I had ever done. And I really did love my former career as an educator. And that motivated me in a way I had never been motivated to do anything. You know, in my old job, I would, you know, finish my task for the day and then like surf the internet for the rest of the day because I could because I finished my work so fast that I would screw around. In my new career as an artist, like it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make art for six hours and then screw around the rest of the day. Like I would make art all of the time because I wanted to, not because I was you know, trying to only get away with something for the amount of time that I had to. That to me was real love and real motivation. And part of the love and motivation was that I was making stuff and I was putting it out into the world in this new thing called the internet. And people were, I was getting feedback and it was great. And not to the extent that I get it today, but, you know, the beginning, the seeds of that. And that was motivating. And also I had to pay bills. You know, I had to pay my mortgage. I had to, I was an adult. I was, you know, by the time I, 
by the time I left my job to make art full time, I was 39. So I started painting and drawing when I was 32. So all of this happened over the course of my 30s. And at 39, to, you know, to leave my, my career and go try to do this thing was a big deal. I Lisa, wanna... I'm just, just stopping you a second. <laughs> like, I, I'm just thinking about where my own life was at 39. And by the time I hit 39, my son hadn't even been born yet. But I felt so saddled by the responsibilities of the life that I had created, the partner that I had at that time, the apartment that I owned at that time. And the debt that I had accumulated by that point in my life. Like, what did you do about those things? Well, I I actually had debt. So I I consolidated my debt, which meant I couldn't use credit cards for like um, seven years or something crazy. Even after I started to make a really good living as an, as an artist, I still couldn't get a credit card because at the time I, you know, I was like, I have to get out of debt if I'm going to live as an artist. Because in my mind, it was going to. I knew, understood that it was going to take a while to get to the point where I was making a good amount of money. That was did, always, you, did you ever anticipate that for yourself? Did you say, if I figure this out, I am entitled to an, an, an ode or perhaps I, I will achieve a great income as well as great success? I have always been pretty success-driven. And I think in particular, this career path motivated me in a way that nothing ever, ever had. And so at least at least this was something that I aspired, not necessarily to become as well known as I've become or to have as many opportunities, but certainly to make a living. I could see that was possible. And um, I was sort of my career started on the cusp of when the internet was becoming a space for, for visual artists, for all creative people in general, but for visual artists to really promote and share their work and build a career for themselves. And so I got in on that early on. Um, so yeah, at 39, I was like, you know, I, ha I have a mortgage, um, I have debt. At the time, I, I had a, a new partner. We hadn't really built a life together yet, but I was in a new relationship. I had responsibilities. I had my parents who were, were like, you've got to be crazy to be doing this. And so in the back of my mind, I was like, I am going to prove to them and everyone else that I can, that this isn't just some, you know. So as hard as I worked over the next decade, you know, so so much of that, I think, was due to this sense of, like, not hustling necessarily for the sake of hustle, but like I had a lot of goals. And one of them was to, 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 make, to make something out of this life and career change that happened in the middle of my life, yeah. We're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break, Lisa talks about becoming an expert at something entirely new. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Lisa Congdon. So were there specific milestones where you cross over into the next threshold? Yeah, for sure. So I remember I finally left my job in 2007. And then in 2008... A big thing happened. I signed with an illustration agent. And of course, at the time I thought, and she's fairly prestigious. And so I thought, okay, this is it. I've arrived, right? All of a sudden, I'm going to start getting a ton of work and my name's going to get out there. And and of course, that didn't happen. And Not that she ever told me it was going to, but I realized pretty quickly I still had to do the work and I still had to show up, and I still had to practice. I still had to develop my voice as an artist. I still had to build bodies and bodies of work. I still had to promote myself. And um, eventually, we got to the place where I was starting to get regular work. Um, but that was a f- big hurdle for me, and she was an, an amazing mentor to me for many years while I was represented by her. And then in 2011, I got my first book deal, and that was also, you know, I've since then published, uh, I'm actually working on books um, 9, 10, and 11 right now. And so, you know, I've made many books since then. I haven't never not been working on a book. So that was sort of like another huge milestone. Uh, well, Lisa, I want to go back to that time when you were developing as an artist and ask a very simple question. Did you think you were good? So I don't know if you've ever heard Ira Glass talk about the beginner gap. So he does this... It's You can find it on the internet, but he has this really amazing description of what we call the beginner gap. And so it's like, as artists and creative people, our taste is always further along than our ability. Maybe not always, but in the beginning. We aspire to make, you know, we have a picture in our head of like the kind of work we want to make, but then we sit down to do it and it aspires to be good. It's trying to be good, but it's not that great. And I think most artists know that. And that actually frustrates people so much that they often quit. You know, because being a creative person requires showing up and, and like, working really hard to get better at something. It doesn't come immediately to most people. It's just like learning to play the piano or any musical instrument or getting good at any sport. You might have natural ability, but you still have to work really hard to sort of get to the place in your head where, where your work looks like your vision and I, that, I was definitely that person. However, like I knew I had a long way to go. But I also understood that if I, on some level, and maybe because I had, you know, I was older and I had a certain amount of maturity compared to somebody who had just graduated from art school, I understood that, that if I was going to get anywhere, I had to start putting my work into the world, even though it wasn't perfect, even though it, it didn't match my idea of where I wanted it to be. And I liked it enough to put it out into the world. And other people liked it enough to receive it and appreciate it. My work has improved enormously over the last decade or more. But 
and sometimes I'm even embarrassed to look at stuff from 10 years ago. But I also appreciate that I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't taken the risk of putting it out into the world at the time. I think that is a primary thing that keeps a lot of people from ever going down the creative path, the first experience with feedback. Have you ever gotten feedback that has cut you down in any way? Oh, yeah, totally. In fact, I, you know, I never went to art school, and a, a big part of art education is getting you used to brutal feedback. So I actually get invited all the time to do critiques at colleges and to do portfolio reviews. And it's so interesting for me to be on the other side of the table because I never actually went through that process myself. And part of the reason art schools do that, uh, for better or for worse, is to prepare students for the art and illustration world, which working with clients and galleries and art critics and can be brutal, right? Because art is subjective. And so I didn't have a whole lot of experience with it until I entered the professional realm and I was self-taught. So that was really my first time experiencing it. And my agent, bless her heart, she really tried hard to critique my work for me and push me to make different, better, more interesting, more layered, more developed work. And she, in some ways, was sort of my first teacher. I also had a studio mate in um, San Francisco when I lived there who had her MFA and, you know, had gone through all of the schooling. And we would sit and and sort of talk about each other's work. And, of course, she was, like, incredibly gentle and amazing. But it was also the first time that somebody would look at my work and say, here's how I think you could make this better or here's what I think is working. And, of course, working with clients – as I've done now for years, um, most art directors and creative directors that I work with are incredibly gentle with me, but I have gotten some pretty harsh feedback before and things I've turned in. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm used to it now. Well, it's, it's funny you say that. It makes me think of my own path as a writer and how necessary editing was to making me a better writer. But every time I would get to the point where I would have mastered something I would simply turn around and it would allow me to see how much further I had to go. And I'm wondering if that's also oh, yeah. your experience. I mean, not to, I mean, in, in some ways, like, yes, the sort of feedback loop in my like visual art has been important. But I've also, you know, written a bunch of books. And I feel like there's even the, the sort of stronger example from my own personal experience is in writing. When I was writing the business book for artists called Art Inc., I had two editors. And I'll never forget the first time that I got my first draft of maybe the first three chapters back. And it was literally ripped to shreds. And I felt such a sense of failure, even though they kept saying this is amazing, but I couldn't see past all the marks on the page. And that very week, I went to see Cheryl Strade speak. And the person who was interviewing her asked her about the editing process for Wild, which had just come out at the time. And she talked about how much she learned about, you know, the writing process in having entire chunks of her story be removed or, you know, worked on. And it was so great for me to hear. And I went back the next day and said, this is actually a really positive thing. You are trying to help me make the best book possible because that's the message she said she began to understand her editors were doing for her. And my attitude changed completely. And so now, you know, almost seven, eight years later, when something gets totally marked up, I have this sense of gratitude about it. You know, I don't always agree with it. And I know right. when to push back. But 
Um, and the same is true for my visual art when somebody – when I turn something in and, and an editor is like, this is totally not working. You know, their job is to help you make better work. And, I mean, that creative collaboration with somebody is actually like a really powerful experience. I have that sense of gratitude too, but it sometimes takes me 24 hours to like park it and come back to it. So talk to me about the advice that you often offer up. <laughs> you know, most people who are, you know, I have a lot of followers, I should say, who aspire to not necessarily make art, you know, or have a career like I have, but they, they want to have a professional career. They want to, they want to find their style. They want to, they want to be productive. They want to make work that other people care about. And one of the main pieces of advice that I give is it's important to just begin. I mean, we get so caught up in being afraid of not being good enough and not – and that I think really holds people back um, not only from beginning the creative process but from sharing their work in the world. And you can't just do it once or twice or three times or four times or even a hundred times and expect that it's going to take hold. You have to love it enough and find something in it to love enough to keep doing it over and over and over in order for it to take hold, I think. I think about how you said early on, you, you you just kept doing this, that you couldn't you couldn't not do it. It seems like, you know, we're talking about your career, but it seems like you're talking about more of a calling. I feel like that. I mean, it sounds so woo-woo to talk about it that way, but I don't, it was really like, I always like to say that the process of sort of figuring out who you are as an artist isn't magic. It's not this thing that some people are born with and some people are not. Everyone has to work at it. And that's actually the, the beautiful thing, right, is that it isn't this magical thing that, that you either have or you don't have. Everyone who chooses to embark on the creative path has to, ha you know, engage in the discipline and the openness to sort of, you know, go down that path. But the things that your work can do can be magical. And that's, I think, for me was the transformative part is I began to see, oh, okay, I have to work really hard. But when I do every now and again, make a piece of work that resonates with a lot of people or that touches a lot of people or that like transforms somebody's perspective on something, that is like so mind-blowing to me. I got addicted to that. So it doesn't happen every time, but it happens often enough that it it is definitely this motivating force for me. So as you look back in your career, you know, Lisa, I really wanted to talk to you because you are a late bloomer. Yes. You, are, you are a professed <laughs> late bloomer. And so you came to this halfway through your career, not quite halfway. I hope you have a long time, uh, long memory <laughs> in front of you. Would your career be different if you had come to it right away? Do you ever wish you had? No. In fact, I actually made a book in 2016, or it came out in 2016, called A Glorious Freedom, Older Women Leading Extraordinary Lives. And part of the reason I made that book is because I felt really strongly that part of why I had this success that I've had and and all of the opportunities that I've had were because I came into my career with all of this life experience and all of this struggle and strife and figuring out, like, what was I meant to do with my life and experience learning to be a writer in the organization where you and I used to work together and experience in relationships and in friendships and in therapy and, you know, all of these things. And, you know... Maybe in the beginning, I was like, what if I had figured this out when I was 22? How different would my life be? But then I realized, like, 
all of the stuff that had happened to me in my late 30s and in my 40s was so magical because it came from all of the stuff that led up to it, right? All of the stuff that sort of that I built my career on. And I, the more people I interviewed for this book that I made um, on that topic, the more I realized that was true, generally speaking. Women always um, of certain age, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, will often, if I do a public event, you know, there'll be a Q&A and they'll raise their hand and they'll say, so, you know, I'm 55 and I really, you know, just starting out in my career, but I'm really terrified that it's too late. Some version of that question. And I like to say you have more wisdom, more perspective, more creativity, more intelligence than anyone who's younger than you. That is a gift, right? That is a gift. That is something to look at with great pride and with great hope and not as something that is working against you. And if we can just begin, especially as women, to think about you know, the sort of last half of our life as the most magical, most amazing years, I feel like so many women could do so many incredible things that it's our thinking about what is a detriment versus what is an asset that really screws us up a lot of the time. Once I started thinking about all of this stuff that I previously maybe felt a little shame about or I had imposter syndrome about as actually a strength and not a weakness, everything transformed for me. And I I encourage other women to do the same. So I really hear that. Um, well, thank you. Let me let me end with a final question, Lisa. Okay. So what's the most important thing that you've learned in your journey as an artist? You have to make work for yourself. You have to find the intersection between what you love, owning your own experience, whatever it is that sort of brought has brought you to that place, and finding a way to share that with the world that feels good to you. And those are have been really important parts of my my own path, you know, this sort of appreciation for my own experience, making the kind of work I want to make and not necessarily what somebody else wants me to make, and also finding out, you know, like what are the 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 most authentic ways for me to deliver this stuff to other people in a way that feels good. And um all of that has, I don't know, made my career feel you know, sometimes my, my the work that I do feels overwhelming and stressful, but if I can stay focused on all of those things, ultimately at the end of the day, it makes all of it okay. So, Well, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Jesse. Again, that was Lisa Congdon, an illustrator and author of books like Art Inc., The Essential Guide for Building Your Career as an Artist, and A Glorious Freedom. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Laura Sim. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Prond is our technical director. Maya Mangini and Victoria Taylor wrap everything up in a neat bow. Our music was composed, just for us, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs> you make it sound like such a good linear story <laughs> in the telling, you know. And if you had asked me, you know, actually, I probably would have guessed you would have done something like this. Honestly, Jesse, you also 
I mean, I, I remember I we lost touch and it might have been John or someone sent me like, oh, Jesse's writing for Wired now or wherever you were at the time. And I don't remember. It, it's like you lose touch with people. And, you know, some people just go on to do not that you what I, you and I are doing is better than anybody else. But like it was also really cool to me that somebody I had previously worked with had gone off and, you know, done something completely different. 